0: I guess, Uh, we want to look at a passage of Scripture uh, from Matthew, the second chapter, and it's the story of the wise men as they have made their journey to see the Christ child. And so it's the first 12 verses of Matthew 2. Let me read that for you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. Well, and they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. You know, when I read the story of the wise men, if I'm very honest with you, I end up with more questions than answers. (laughs) Uh, They have long been the center of just ongoing debate about many things. It says they were from the east. Well, does that mean... The Orient, like the carol says, we three kings of Orient are? Well, maybe. Does it mean they were from Persia? Well, maybe. Does it mean they were from East Jerusalem? (laughs) Well, probably not. (laughs) If they were from Persia or further, well, when did they get there? That's a long way. Some will tell you they didn't arrive until several months after the birth of Christ. Some say that Herod gave this uh, order later in the chapter to kill all the babies two years and under because perhaps the child was that old now. How many wise men were there? How many wise men were there? We don't know. How many gifts were there? There were three gifts, and so we automatically think there were three wise men, but perhaps not. We're not told. Why would the wise men stop to ask directions at Herod's palace? Some say this is the only time recorded in history where men have actually stopped and asked for directions. Couldn't pass it up. Well, after all, they had a star, didn't they? And what about that star? Was it just some supernatural occurrence or is it something we can search out through astronomy and history? And Another question I have is, how does a star in the heavens end up hovering over one house? Like this one did over the place where Jesus was. Uh, those are the. Those are just some questions about the wise men that many have been speculating on throughout the centuries. and Well, let me take it a step further. There's a lot of other questions about the birth of Christ. Scripture tells us that he was born in Bethlehem during a census instituted by Caesar Augustus. It tells us that his parents were Mary and Joseph. We know that Mary conceived the child by the Holy Spirit. We know the shepherds came to visit, and there were angels involved in almost every part of the story. But when did it happen? What season of the year did it happen? That's caused so much speculation over the years. Well, let me ask you, when do you think Jesus was born? What season of the year do you think Jesus was born? Some of you are going, You're not going to tell me it's not December 25th, are you? Well, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was a priest who served on a known schedule. And from that, people have traced the conception of John the Baptist, and we know that Jesus was conceived six months later. So based on all of that evidence, many speculate that John was born in the spring of the year around Passover, and Jesus was born in the fall of the year around the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, personally, I think that would be really cool if it were true. You know, the Passover, which we do a Seder here at Grace every year, the Passover always has this place setting for who? Elijah. And it's Jewish tradition that that Elijah is going to show up before the Messiah is going to come. And so there's always a place set at the Passover, hoping that Elijah would come, because that ushers in the coming of the Messiah. And not only that, but six months after the Passover is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the hugest celebration in the Jewish calendar. It's a celebration of God coming to Tabernacle Tent to abide, to be, and live among his people. Now, there couldn't be a better symbol of the Messiah than this feast. Some people say the shepherds would not have been out in the field watching their flocks by night in the middle of winter. But at the end of the day, we just don't know. We just don't know what time of the year Jesus was born. You know it makes me wonder, maybe God doesn't want us to know. After all, God has revealed so many things to people who we find recorded in Scripture. I mean I mean, who was that creation to write all that down? <laughs> Nobody. And yet God chose to reveal a lot of detail about creation to Moses. And God gave his people explicit details as to the timing of their feasts and how to set them up and everything and But when it comes to the birth of Christ, all the people involved here chose to record just a scant amount of information. Couldn't God have taken the initiative and revealed to someone somewhere the answers to our Christmas questions? (laughs) But He's chosen not to. And there's a reason God chose to bring His Son into the world in obscurity without fanfare, without notice, and in many ways without a whole lot recorded about it. There's a reason for that. He didn't want us wrapped up in all of that. He didn't want us distracted from the central theme of the advent and the incarnation of God to live among us. It wasn't about all the questions that I've raised. It was about God leaving heaven, humbling Himself to enter a world of sinners, And to be bruised and to be beaten by our world. And it was about God giving His only Son to die on a cross to win our souls so that we can be reconciled to our Father in heaven. And so I make this point the birth of Jesus was purposefully obscure, it was God's intention for it to be humble, to be. Quiet in a stall with two teenagers as parents, most likely. Paul writes about it in Philippians 2, this whole attitude of God. He says this in Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. He he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself It means to be stripped of reputation, to be neutralized, to be voided, to have no effect. Emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of you and I. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, it was a requirement for God to communicate effectively the mission of his son. He wants us to know that Jesus was just like you and I. Some of you are going, yeah, right. (laughs) Jesus was still perfect. He was sinless. He, He didn't possess the sinful nature. But I want you to know that Jesus laid aside his power in order to make himself completely dependent upon his father. Jesus even said things like this. He says, I don't do these powerful things that you see. It's not me doing these things. I don't have the power to do these things. It's the father who's doing his work in and through me. And you just think about it. If he had come into our world as a king with a great stately birth and all the pomp and circumstance that really God would deserve, well, it would be quite the opposite. He would be retaining all he had in heaven and he would not have walked among us as he did. His birth was purposefully obscure. Well, and Herod's a part of the story, as we saw he hears from these three wise oops he hears from these wise men and they've come to worship the newborn king of the jews can you imagine being the king and hearing somebody come i've come to worship the new king of the jews in verse 3 it says that when herod heard this he was troubled i bet and because herod was troubled who else was troubled it says, all of Jerusalem was troubled. It means to be stirred or agitated, kind of like roiling or boiling water. And You have to understand that Herod was an, an extremely paranoid and insecure worldly leader. Well, we know from history that he killed his favorite wife. <laughs> I hate to be his non-favorite wife, you know, but he killed two of his sons. Just to make sure that he wouldn't have any competitors for the throne. And so, when the news spread that Herod is upset, everyone feared for what this reckless, paranoid, insecure king might do. We see a number of things in King Herod. He's cunning, he's deceitful in his investigation. He found out at exactly what time this star had appeared. Okay, you tell me exactly when it appeared. And he asked the wise men, Okay, wise men, you go ahead and search for that holy child and let let me know when you find him. Because why? I would like to go and worship him too. Uh Uh-huh. He was trying to save his own skin and he's going to do whatever possible, whatever means are available to him to hold on. The power. So I ask you, could this statement be true? The more powerful people become, the more God is a threat. The more powerful people become in worldly power, the more God and, by extension, followers of Christ become a threat. I mean, you just look at history. You know, Vladimir Lenin, the founder of Communist Russia, said that religion is the opium for the people, a sort of spiritual booze is what he said. He said that every religious idea, every idea of God, even flirting with the idea of God is unutterable vileness. You know, my question has always been, if they don't believe that God exists, they're they're pronounced atheists, if they don't believe that God exists, why are they always fighting against Him? Why are they always taking Him on? Even today, we see those who want to amass political and cultural power. They're, just, they have, they're on this mission to eradicate God and Jesus and His followers from the culture. so the second point I make is that the birth of Jesus was a threat to powerful people. And what I mean by powerful people, hear me out, is that people who have amassed political, cultural, worldly power, where they want and seek more and more control, he's still a threat to the power hungry. And people who are followers of Christ have forsaken the world and all that it has to offer and To followers of Jesus, we're so committed to Him and we love Him so much and we worship Him and He's our life so much that He always is going to come before the state, right? Right? (laughs) He is always going to come before the state. And that makes the followers of Christ somewhat dangerous to the worldly who seek and desire power. So this birth is a threat to powerful people. And as I read in Matthew 2, you might have picked up on a common theme that keeps inserting itself into that passage. And throughout the Christmas story, I'll give you a few choice phrases. Verse 2 said, the wise men, they say that we have come to worship him. Verse 8, Herod even lies and says, well, I want to worship him. In verse 10, it says, the, men, the wise men found the place where Jesus was, and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And verse 11 says that when the wise men finally found Jesus and they entered the house, what did they do? They fell to the ground, and they worshipped Him. You see a theme if you include the Christmas passage from Luke, you get these phrases. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. It says after the shepherds came and visited, they went back glorifying and praising God for all that had, they had heard and seen. So the third point is this, the birth of Jesus provoked worship. It provokes worship today. And the most appropriate thing that you could do at Christmas is not put up a tree or drink eggnog. By the way, does anybody really like eggnog? Mmm, just can't do that. It's not putting lights on your house. It's not going to the mall. It's... Not even exchanging gifts or eating ham or turkey or whatever your family eats. The most appropriate thing that we could do at Christmas time is worship Jesus, the newborn king. You know, it's impossible when you look at the story, you see how it all came about. It's impossible to imagine how people could just ever become ho-hum with worshiping Jesus. I mean, think about a ho-hum Christ follower surrounded by the events of the birth. Yeah, I see him. Beautiful baby, I know. Oh, he's come to change the world, big deal. And what about all those angels in the sky? They are just so loud. And those wise men, what do they think they're doing with those expensive gifts? What a waste. What is a baby going to do with myrrh after all? That's what you embalm people with. What are we saying here? I mean, can you even imagine being ho-hum with worship when you are aware of what this birth not only means to the world, but what it means to you? I mean, understand the scene. The wise men, it says, they prostrated themselves on the ground when they saw the baby Jesus, face down. And you've got to think about that scene. Uh, these wise men were thought to be men of wealth, great stature and reputation, perhaps kings or priests, perhaps royalty. They come in with these royal robes, and they have these expensive gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they're probably coming into a home fit for a peasant. And in this peasant home, there is this baby. Can you imagine the scene and these royal men before this humble positioning child fall to their faces? I just find the picture startling. One of the greatest expressions of humility. They understand who he is. They know he's a king. They see him for who he is and they see them for who they are. And that means they must be bowed before him in worship. You can't worship without humility. You know that. You can't give place to another that you find as a peer or somebody beneath you. You worship that which you look up to, which you revere, which you are awestruck by they also gave him expensive gifts and worship and the offering of worship is the letting go and the giving over of the most priceless and precious things we have and so the question i would ask is has christmas become ho hum to you i mean Every year it's the same old thing, right? You sing the same songs. You put up the same tree in some cases. You try to find gifts for everyone and isn't it exhausting? You always have that one on the last day where you're just walking down and something in the Middle Island display, okay, I'll take that. We just do what we do every year. And when Jesus arrived, there were people who really knew what was happening. There were people who really knew what this all meant, and their hearts exploded with worship and praise. They knew it was the Messiah in the flesh. He was full of grace. He was full of truth. They knew that it was the Messiah who had come to show them what God was like and who God was. They knew it was the Messiah who would be offered as a sacrifice for their life. They knew it was the Messiah that would win back what had been lost by the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Those who knew that this was the Messiah responded with one response, and that was worship and praise. Our prayer is this season, as we come to the close of this service, as we gather back in for Christmas Eve, our prayer is to be a people of worship, a people who understand worship, a people who respond to the wonderful things that God has given to us through the incarnation of His Son. In unabashed worship. Isaiah 53 5, the mission of Christ. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he, Jesus, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. He is our peace. He is healing. Father God, we come to you today with our hearts filled with worship. As we reflect upon this season of the year, about all that you mean to us, all that you've done for us, all that you are in our lives. Father, what could we do but worship you? What could we do but praise you and sing to you and offer everything that we have to you and say, Lord, my life is yours. Lord, I want to be filled with you. I want to know the truth about things. And so I know that the Spirit of God can reveal the truth of what is really going on in my life. I want to be led through scripture by you. And I know it's the spirit of truth that guides me into that truth and understanding. And Father, it starts at the manger. It starts with the obscurity of this birth. And so, Father, as we at this season of the year gather around this manger in very humble circumstances, and we don't live in houses like the one you came into, we... Don't wear the same clothes that you wore in the impoverished state of Nazareth. but yet Father, we understand who you are and we understand who we are. And so we have only one we only have one response, worship. Father, hear our, hear our prayer to you today receive our worship. In your powerful name we pray these things. And I would ask that you would just sing, stand together. Let's just sing these carols of worship.